Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, February 1st, 2017. This is the promotional malpractice live chat here on MMAfighting.com. I hope you're doing well. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. My name is Luke Thomas. You might know me from this podcast and others. Um, okay, today on the podcast, we will get to, let's see, the Ronda Rousey news, um, ostensibly news, from UFC President Dana White that she is very likely done in the sport. There was the bevy of news created from the Conor McGregor Q&A from Saturday. We'll get to some of that as well. Uh, fallout from UFC on Fox 23. UFC Houston is this weekend. So there's a lot going on, um, even if there's not necessarily a whole lot big stuff going on. Uh, best place to get your questions and comments in is going to be on MMAfighting.com. There is going to be a live thread. You just put a comment in there if it turns green. It gets priority, but not exclusivity. Got some water today. I'm ready to rock. Uh, let's get the sip, and then we'll get it going. All right. Without further ado, let's see. First question. <clears throat> Let's start this chat by enjoying some beautiful violence from Francis Ngannou. And it says, want to box with him? Have fun. And it's got gifs, gifs of him uppercutting guys, stopping Arlovsky, connecting on him, dropping someone with overhand lefts, defending takedowns. You want to double leg him against the wall while well, he will activate his back muscles that he inherited from King Kong himself. This is him talking, not me. Blah, 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 and then strangle you to death if need be. He's 100% takedown defense, and submission skills aren't too shabby either. Uh, by the way, he's been taken down four times by three different opponents, so that's clear. But he goes, I don't often get hyped about prospects, but seeing a heavyweight prospect like this that is incredibly athletic and has a high fight IQ, well, that gets me very hyped. The amount he has improved from his UFC debut one year ago, it's impressive. And remember that he started training MMA 3.5 years ago with no sport or combat sport experience before that. So he hasn't worn his body like many MMA fighters at their 30s have. I just got that feeling with May that we may have something big here. Yeah, we might. Some people had objected to some of the things I had said that in terms of um, we just don't know. We just don't know. Um, too much about his cardio and we don't know too much about his wrestling prowess and people are like well he fought curtis blades sure curtis blades has some wrestling ability i wouldn't want to take that away from him but that's a different magnitude than someone like stipe miocic going after you or somebody like kane velasquez getting up in your face um i wonder even to an extent someone like ben rothwell too who's not necessarily known for his wrestling but is big and powerful and can have uh, a, a grinding effect at time if he wants to unless he wants to play at range which I don't know that he wants to do too much with a guy like Nganu. So certainly there is plenty of reason for optimism from everything you've mentioned. He is a quick learner. He's very athletic, strong, um, obviously blinding power. And I'm not here to say that his cardio is bad. I'm not here to say that his wrestling is suspect. I'm here to say what we've seen of it has looked very good, but we haven't seen it tested to such an extent that we can have great confidence and know against the very, very best that it's very good. It, in fact, may very well be, but without having that truly put through the ringer, we're merely speculating about that. But we know from his striking, especially against Arlovsky, yes, who's a guy who has gone down you know, uh, fairly easy in times in his fights, but packs a big punch himself. Um, and you know, up at, you know, he's on a bad streak, there's no doubt about it, but 
I don't think Nganu has shown us he's the new Brett Rogers. Far from it. Um, I think that he has shown us that he has a tremendous amount of ability and the rapid progress of his game, I think, is partly evidence of that. So let's see. You know, let's see it tested against a few more. Let's see how it goes. But so far, so very good. So it does Rumble versus Nganu at heavyweight would be interesting. It certainly would. But on the other hand, you know, Nganu, I'm sorry, uh, Arlovsky, and this was a while ago, you know, he lost to Johnson, but there were moments of the fight that were very competitive, even though he lost some teeth, it appeared. Um, I think Nganu is just a little bit too big for him at heavyweight. Someone says, pay-per-view drought ahead. Luke, although 2016 clearly turned out to be the biggest year for MMA, I can't help but feel like this pay-per-view buy rate for the first half of 2017 is going to be quite dull in comparison. All the UFC's major stars are currently inactive for a number of different reasons. Conor McGregor is taking an undisclosed amount of time of absence, although apparently not if you just ask him to fight 145. Um, but I know what you mean, for sure. Brock Lesnar and John Jones are both serving suspensions until the summer. Ronda Rousey isn't likely to return to the Octagon anytime soon after suffering a knockout loss in December. And GSP has been MIA since being unable to come to an agreement with the company. Question. With no profitable fights on the horizon, how much of a negative impact will a poor pay-per-view buy rate affect the company and its new owners? This is more a question. Hold on a second. Someone ran some numbers here. So it says the first quarter of a year isn't necessarily a predictor of the full year, but compare 2017 to more recent years. Good grief. 2013, this is what you had to beginning. Belfort Bisping, Johnson Dodson, Aldo Edgar won, Barrow McDonald, Rousey Carmouche, Silva Stan, St. Pierre Diaz. 2014, Safadine versus Lim, Rocco Philippou. That fight was, that event was not good. Henderson versus Thompson, Barrow versus Faber, Machida Musasi, Rousey versus McMahon, Kim versus Hathaway, Gustafson versus Manawa, Hendricks versus Lawler, Shogun Hendo 2. 2015, Jones Cormier, McGregor Seaver, Gustafson Johnson, Silva versus Diaz, Henderson versus Thatch, Bigfoot versus Mir, Rousey Zangano, Pettis versus Dos Anjos, Maya LaFlair. 2016, Lawler versus Condit, Dillashaw versus Cruz, Johnson versus Bader, Hendricks versus Thompson, Cowboy versus Cowboy, Silva versus Bisping, and McGregor versus Diaz Hunt versus Mir. Finally, here's 2017. Rodriguez versus Penn, Shevchenko versus Pena, Bermuda, excuse me, versus Korean Zombie, Holm versus Durandami, Lewis versus Brown, Woodley Thompson 2, Belfort Gastelum, Manawa Anderson. Okay, so back to the question. With no profitable fights on the horizon, how much of a negative impact will a poor pay-per-view buy rate affect the company and its new owners? Boy, this is a very difficult question to answer, only insofar as um, they're caught between a rock and a hard place. I don't, Rousey, I don't think there's any amount of money that would necessarily be so great that it would draw her back. McGregor's hard to predict, and I think is asking for what they consider to be a pound of flesh. Um, with, you know, it's interesting, right? Could they get him to put away his Mayweather dreams forever if they told him he could have a stake in the company? Right, and actually made him a part owner. I don't. I think they don't. I think they don't want to give him part ownership. And I think on top of that, they don't want him to go through with the Mayweather fight. But they're trying to find a way to maybe guide it if there is a Mayweather fight. So, so that's weird too. So, but he's he's. I won't say unpredictable, but impossible basically to corral. All the things you mentioned, Jones being out, Brock being out. It's going to be. Uh, and also, they front loaded a lot of events having two belts on. Uh, cards and then three belts on cards, right? Where they had 205. Certainly Woodley is out there defending again. 
We'll see what happens with Bisping, but he's had surgery, so he couldn't be back for the Romero fight. That wouldn't necessarily be a big money fight, although I think it'd be a highly anticipated and a very good one. But to your point, there's just this natural ebb and flow, and I think they front-loaded, or I should say they back-loaded the end of 2016, which has made problems for the beginning and middle, frankly, of 2017. Um, I suspect the end of the year will be a lot better than the beginning of it, and I suspect 2018's beginning might be a little bit better as well. But this is the reality. To get that big year and to break the records they did and to put on the events they did, they had to pay some costs. Um, even if they hadn't done that, we'd have, what, one or two more fights in play. It wouldn't substantively change it. There's just a lot of factors working against them, and how harmful that is in terms of what they have to do to pay off their debt um, is way too early to speculate. None of the numbers are in, and if they were, I'm not sure we would have access to them. So I guess we'll have to see, but if I'm them, I'm surpri surprised they're letting it go this long to this kind of extent, that they're this unwilling to get GSP unless they just don't fundamentally believe he would sell uh, to get him back in action. Um, so, so yeah, um, it's going to be interesting to see, t this is the way I'm looking at it. It's going to be interesting to see to what extent this revives the oversaturation debate, because I don't think it's actually in play right now and it may not ever come back in play. And that's sort of my point. Let's just see to what extent this, uh, reintroduces that debate into the pub, into the MMA discourse because it's one thing to not have stars and it's another thing to not or to have too many uh, events and the two problems can coincide but they can also be quite different as well so let's just sort of see what they can put together and then to what extent that debate revives itself because if there's actually it's actually more problematic if folks decide it's not an oversaturation issue because if it was an oversaturation issue what you could do is you could actually make some changes to the number of events to make them better, to produce better ratings or whatever other outcome you're looking for. Maybe not ratings or perhaps it's something else. But if, if you can clearly def tell that that won't in fact solve the problem, then you have an entirely different challenge ahead, which is how do we get, how do we get to the other side of some place where people now want to see this person? How do we make a star? And it's always been an incredibly imprecise, frankly, fortuitous event. Um, there's only so much you can do. You know, you can give a guy like McGregor a microphone, but they've got to work with it. You can give somebody a platform. You can promote them in a certain way with thousands of dollars, but ultimately there is, it's mostly a handshake and then you send them off into the wild. And if you're the promoter, you have to kind of wait for them to do their part uh, or for the fan base to find some reason to latch onto them. And this is, this is incredibly unscientific. Um, so we'll see, we'll see, but it's, it's going to be, it's going to be through June maybe even July itself, it's going to be events like these weekend after weekend, unless something unforeseen happens. True, false. Even though Herb Dean made a questionable call, Cowboys co cornermen were also to blame for his double knockout loss. I have to say, I, I certainly respect Greg Jackson and Brandon Gibson, and I, I don't know who the other gentleman was in that corner. Um, I think it was one of Donald's personal coaches. You know, there's no easy answer to any of these things. You know, what's the, what's the threshold? where you say, I'm not going to send a fighter back out there. It looked to me like he was glassy-eyed and not all there. And I'm sure they've had moments that felt very similar to this one where they sent another guy back out there and he was able or she was able to will themselves to greatness. I, I just don't I – don't, I think it's very easy to be like, they had a responsibility. They did have a responsibility to maybe not let him back out there. And I would have been absolutely thrilled had they not done that. 
But at the same time, making those kinds of very difficult calls in those kinds of scenarios, um, it's way easier to, to, to say on the outside looking in. Um, it did occur to me to not let him back out there. You know, like I think I even typed it at the time. So I'm sure that they had some of those concerns, but you don't know how damaging it's going to be for a fighter's relationship. Um, you don't know, uh, you know, just how fracture, fractious this kind of event can be to do something like that for your life, both personally and professionally. And I think they, and they don't want to insult the guy by by doing that in some kind of way. But I think the bigger question is if you've got guys as humane and as smart as Greg Jackson and Brandon Gibson who probably felt like maybe there was some reason to not let him go back out and did let him go back out. To me, that's, you know, however, how much blame you want to assign to them, you can have that, um, you can make that choice on your own. To me, it speaks to a, a, a much larger problem. And that larger problem is this, we have this attitude in martial arts and incorporated into mixed martial arts that is incredibly toxic about uh, and it affects everybody from me to you to it's it has permeated everywhere that you what makes MMA exciting and what makes fighting such a riveting event to witness is that it's incredibly unpredictable and you simply don't know when and this notion of when we go from it's possible this person could return to improbable to dangerously improbable asking someone to make those kinds of decisions in a split second when they have this culture of you never know you never know you never know you can do it push through limits push through limits inculcated over time it begins to change the way people view these um these really delicate difficult scenarios so to me if guys who are that who care that much and are that good at this if they're unwilling or at least don't ultimately choose to keep a guy like that from going back out there, that to me says that if they can't make it, who, who can? Who will make those kinds of choices? How bad does it have to be for a fighter before someone in the sport says in their corner, I, I just can't in good conscience let you go out there? We've heard times like that where Trevor Whitman, you know, was counseling Nate Marquardt, I think, in the Gastelum fight, where, you know, if you do this for another round, I'm not going to send you back out there for or whatever the case may be, you know, you got one more shot at this. I can't, I can't keep letting this go on. You know, you have heard that and that's the, that's, that's an important thing, but uh, it, this, it's just too little, too late. It's so, it's so little of that relative to boxing In boxing. They're just much more willing to be like, if someone's just getting abused on the ropes, they know that there's no real chance that this can turn the tide. And to an extent, boxing is less of a unpredictable sport. Um, else that's happened, certainly, but I don't think it's quite as often as mixed martial arts. And so as a consequence, that bleeds over into the decision-making around, you know, a guy's, <laughs> I mean, he, I think everyone could agree after the fact, there was no real purpose sending him out to that second round. There just wasn't one. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't help anything at all. And that's e very easy to say after the fact, but how do we get to a point where we can tell coaches, you just got to let this one go. You got to let this one go. And for fighters to accept that kind of power from their corner, I think that's another part too. Like, do we? Do I? I want my corner to save me in the event the referee doesn't. They don't want their corner getting out in front of the referee. That's another problem. So, 
they haven't empowered their corners to make these kinds of decisions about their careers beforehand. And I think they need to. They need to give that power to them to save them in the long run. Um, you know, ultimately, would this have some dramatic effect on brain health throughout the sport? I suspect it's it's. I suspect even a healthier culture around this wouldn't necessarily result in a dramatic reduction in brain damage, but I still think it would be helpful enough to, um, to to incorporate. Conor McGregor has better technical boxing than Jorge Masvidal in certain respects. Sure. Um, Bellator will sign Mike Goldberg. I, I don't believe that, but stranger things have happened, so I'll say false. Even though Yair finished BJ Penn pretty easily, we still don't know how good he really is. Yair, to some extent, I think we know he's pretty clearly a top 10 guy. Beyond that, I think there's probably some open debate. It sucks that we'll have to wait a while for tough to end before Garbrandt Dillashaw finally happens. Yes, especially, as previously indicated, the dearth in other eventful MMA moments that's going to happen in 2017. If Brunson, excuse me, if Brunson rushes in recklessly like he did against Whitaker, Anderson will knock him out. Seems so. I don't recommend it. Would you? Habib versus Ferguson will look a, like a longer version of Velasquez versus Verdum with the same amount come out, excuse me, with the same outcome in the championship rounds. Uh a longer version of Alaska's versus Verdum. False. I will say false. I think it'll be much more back and forth. Travis Brown's move from Jackson's to Glendale Fighting Club has been the worst camp switch in MMA history. I don't know if it's, but it's the worst, but it's up there. It's strange that Claudia Gadelia doesn't submit anyone considering she's a BJJ world champion. Not necessarily. First of all, I think she was a, a brown belt world champion, not a black belt. There's a difference. And I think uh, on top of that, um, well, I could be wrong about that, but if, if I am, please correct me. But in any event, uh, plenty of people win on takedowns, passes, advantages, um, back takes, you know, mounts, and don't necessarily have amazing finishes. Or she might have a very gi-concentrated game where she's doing lapel chokes and loop chokes and bow and arrows. Um, I haven't seen enough of her gi grappling to make that assessment, but... Um, you can be a really good grappler and not necessarily a great MMA finisher, even with your own BJJ. World Series of Fighting will be out of business by the year. Uh, that they're still around tells me that's not true. False. Tom the Goat Brady will get his fifth Super Bowl ring in February. Probably because there is no God. All right. Someone emailed me this question. Um, this is, um, might be painfully obvious as an outsider looking in. I have nothing to base my view on. We know that Dana White spoke on Donald Trump's behalf at the Republican National Convention last year. At the time, I wondered how this might affect his and the UFC's relationship with Mexican and Latino fighters. Now, with the travel ban, this is his words, not mine, already possibly affecting a high-level fighter like Gagard Mousasi, and I'm sure other lesser-known fighters, this came to my mind again. Have you seen or do you believe there is a possibility of Dana White's relationship with the President of the United States causing friction between him slash UFC and fighters affected by the latter's actions or just more liberally minded fighters and managers in general? Not sure how many of those there are in mixed martial arts. 
Given the current state of fighter relations with the UFC and the atmosphere of protest and outrage on the show, excuse me, outrage on show in the U.S. and globally, at the moment, this could be another possible wrinkle for them to deal with. Um, possible, sure. Uh, I would say for now, unlikely. Um, the number of fighters affected by the most recent executive actions in the UFC, while more than just the two known ones in the UF, excuse me, in the NBA, Luol Deng and Thon Maker, um, you know, I think it affects. I think uh, um, Karim Zidane had an article about it. I think you know it could affect Ronda Marcos. It could affect um, to the extent they ever want to import him over here. Jarjus Danho. Uh, obviously, we know about some of the concerns made by Gagard Musasi, although I think they're largely. If he's not a citizen of Iran, then they're largely uh, not too much of a concern, although I can see why. Given the confusion in the early rollout, he might be confused, but um, neither here nor there. Here's basically what I would say. I think that there probably, uh, at this stage, is not a whole lot to worry about in terms of this affecting relations, certainly not in the short term. Um, even with some of the flare up with, uh, or the heightened tensions, I should say with Mexico, um, unless some kind of event happens that substantively alters the ability of the UFC to do business in such a way that they continue to meet consumer demand and are able to, um, not merely make you the fan happy, but continue what is basically a globalized a u.s based but globalized company from being able to do what it wants i don't think there's really going to be a tremendous amount of backlash if for example uh islamic fighters of from any country have difficulty getting over here you could see how that would be potentially problematic there might be some backlash then that's not really the situation now so i don't foresee that being a big issue until such an event happens if it ever does. Similarly, with Mexico, while there might be heightened tensions and perhaps avocado prices will go up, uh, tequila as well, um, and they will be passed on to the American consumer in the form of a 20% tariff, um, unless this substantively alters the ability of, A, Mexican fans to get UFC imported to them, or, or the, you know, the UFC's ability to produce even better MMA in the Mexican market, Again, I just don't see how that would necessarily impact UFC and fighter relations. It would have to be something very substantive that got people's attention that would get more than... I mean, as, as, it's rising, as it stands today, reactions to all of these kinds of things have been incredibly polarized. And so what you would need is not merely this polarization, but you would have to get one side to concede that this is so problematic or to concede that this is not problematic such that um, you would get some kind of change. Um, but you get the idea. And right now, that's not where we are. I also think it's sort of an interesting debate happening presently. Um, there's an article in The Ringer. Sorry, this microphone stand sucks. There's an article in The Ringer by a guy called Brian uh, Curtis. I had him on my show recently talking about the sort of stick to sports thing that you always hear from readers to um, sports reporters you know, there's a lot of that going around, but there's a lot less of the sticking to sports happening, right? I mean, here we are talking about this thing on here. In part, I can't avoid it. This question got 10 wrecks. Someone emailed it to me. I just put these in all the time. You know, to the extent that there are events happening in the real world where Thon Maker, Luol Dang, Random Marcos, 
potentially regard Musasi. You get the idea that these fighters are speaking about how it's impacting their lives, or these athletes are speaking about how it's impacting their lives. Steve Kerr speaking about it, uh, Greg Popovich speaking about it. It will naturally insert itself into the, any kind of larger sports conversation anyway. And more than that, the barriers between things seem to be very permeable these days as well. So there's just a lot more of it. But here's the... I find Tom Brady to be an odious toad and Bill Belichick just an absolutely insufferable jagaloon. But, um, you know, I do, believe it or not, this might sound surprising to you, I do think that them being hectored about their support for Donald Trump is a little bit misplaced. Um, that might change if something absolutely catastrophic happens, I suppose. But as it stands, I think, you know, sublimating everything to these sort of uh, to political allegiances even through sports is just a bad look and it's a waste of everyone's time and is frankly annoying and doesn't really serve the reader there's a time to discuss these kinds of things you know and we can we can debate about when those times are but this is just sort of my position that um, a few questions probably is warranted and some kind of examination is warranted but pestering them about it i don't like that too much and frankly, the same goes for Dana for now. Um, I don't, you know, whether you supported what he did or whether you don't support what he did, I don't appreciate that uh, until, until there's a real clear reason to introduce it into the conversation. And again, I think this, this question is fine. You know, what, what do we think about it now? Seems very reasonable to me. But then a different question of, you know, how mad at, are we at Dana for doing that? I think that would have to come at a time when it's a lot more justified. And I, I don't, I don't really see that at the moment. So there you go. Um, okay. I've been watching UFC since UFC 12, excuse me, UFC 112, and at age 16, and without a doubt, the sole hardcore fan of my closet, Jesus, I can't read today, and without a doubt, the sole hardcore fan in my closest friend circle. I never had an issue with blood, a knockout, bone break, leg fracture during a fight until I saw Chris get KO'd by Romero's knee. Seeing it happen live made me question if this is something beneficial to me as a spectator or fan. It doesn't help that I'm a huge Weidman fan, but for the first time I felt sick in my stomach. Have you ever seen a result of a fight that made you seriously question or come close to reconsidering your line of work? Although they both have fights lined up, who would you favor between Weidman and Gasol if they fight by the way right now? Um, yeah, sure. I think, I think viewing MMA is predicated on a few conditions. I'm not going to run through all of them, but one of them is that MMA is and can be incredibly dangerous for a person's health. Um, it can damage your corp corporeal self. It can damage, um, it can cause lasting psychological damage. The, the act itself is a attack on the human body, right? That's what it is. Um, it, there's some limits to it, but it's, that's essentially the purpose. And um, and so the question is, how much of that do we tolerate? And how much of it um, do we not? What, what things do we outlaw ahead of time? What things do we allow? And then ultimately, we have to ask ourselves a question of what is the immediate outcome here from a health standpoint? And what is the, um, you know, sort of the cumulative um, health impact here? 
And we have to sort of decide how much is too much, what is appropriate. But you can imagine, for example, that there would be a very easily identifiable scenario where if there was a certain kind of outcome, this activity would not be allowed. It would be unethical and on, a, on a number of different grounds, and we would find a way to ban it. All right, we want to allow maximum freedom, but at some point the state does have a responsibility to um, protect the citizenry, even against themselves. Um, just, although some might politically disagree with that, but here would be a perfect example, right? We don't allow dueling with guns in the street, right? You can't go get a dueling permit. Um, even if there was no government regulation of it, it's still not legal because there is a strong probability of uh, death or, you know, just you, you don't even, a person even can't consent to this activity, right? Um, which would make the right, I think, not inalienable, but nevertheless, it's a different debate for a different time. Even that kind of thing you can't consent to. So imagine if every fist fight resulted 90% of the time in death. You would imagine that MMA just simply wouldn't be allowed. The risk would be simply too great, but that's not the case. And in fact, we boast that there are ways in which to measure MMA such that it looks safe relative to cheerleading, believe it or not, relative to football, American football, relative to hockey, you name it, whatever, bull riding, something like that. So that ultimately it fits within a uh, the Overton window of... Um, it's not Overton window, but sort of a similar thing to the Overton window where we're, it, you know, we have this general framework of what we basically allow uh, as a society. And here's the interesting part about MMA. Even if it is palatable to you, number one, it's not palatable to many. And number two, I think you would have to agree it pushes right up against the limit of what we basically allow. I mean, there might be one or two more degrees we can turn it up, but it doesn't get much more. It doesn't get. Like there's not going to be any kind of activity that is significantly more dangerous than what MMA is um, that's legal. I mean, I suppose you could be like, okay, swimming with sharks or something. But I mean like a sport, some kind of sanctioned mainstream activity, not, you know, I dare you to go, you know, swim in a river of piranhas. It's a little bit different. Um, so to me, when Cyborg Santos got his skull crushed, um, be, because that is aberrant, it, it, and it did make me sick, uh, and I certainly am glad he retired, if that were common, I don't know how you could ethically justify MMA, if that were common. Um, and some might have a much lower threshold, but that one was one where I was like, you know, if, they, if this happened regularly, um, you know, let's say every third knockout, you couldn't, you couldn't allow this. This this would be this would be so categorically dangerous um, and so risky and so uh, irresponsible of the state to sanction that you couldn't you couldn't get away with it. Okay, let's see here. What's next for Gamebread? I don't know. I'm gonna interview him later. I would hope somebody somebody big. He was calling out Demi and Maya on Twitter. I would love to see that fight because I think Gamebred's good everywhere. I'd love to see the Nick Diaz fight. I'd love to see the Robbie Lawler fight. I'd like to see him get just about anyone in that top five. Diaz versus Maya. How do you see it playing out if it happens? Is it going to be a who submits who type of match? I don't think so. I think Nick Diaz has very good jiu-jitsu, and I think he'd be very hard to submit. 
but I think Demi and Maya would control that pretty easily. Um, I could be crazy about that. Maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, but I could see that fight going the full five, but I don't see how that would be even on jiu-jitsu. Uh, yes, it's MMA jiu-jitsu. It's not BJJ. It's not with a gi. Um, fair enough. It might be a little bit closer than I'm giving it credit for, but I know people are like, oh, this could go either way. I don't I don't see it that way. And Jake Shields, to me, is a, uh, you know, is a different kind of grappler, even than relative to Nick Diaz, in my judgment. So, um, so I don't know. I, I certainly think it would be Diaz to be competitive up until the very end, but ultimately overmatched. If this is already, uh, travel ban question. We've already been over it. Um, Botulinum, possible negative effects. Do you mean botulism? Wrong. Oh, botulinum toxin. So botulinum to toxin, possible negative effects on Cruz's foot speed. During an interview with you, Cruz talked about his 75 injections in each foot with Botox. Cody commented on Cruz seeming foot slow. Botox works by sort of paralyzing nerves. It seems to improve overall foot function and manage pain. I did not, however, find any research for its use in high-level athletes. I did not find evidence it was con uh, contraindicated either. However, I have my fears that this affected him. Do you know of any evidence or experts about this possible side effect? I have not. That is a very good question. I thought Dom looked slow. Obviously, he was pressuring and not figuring... Excuse me. Obviously, he was pressuring and not fighting the perfect fight. He also had more success whilst retreating. Not to take anything away from Cody, but that did not look like Cruz early last year. You know, he's been dealing with plantar fasciitis for a long time. I do think it has taken a toll on him. That style he had is hard to maintain. If you're having to get your feet Botox to manage the pain, which in and of itself is painful to get 75 shots, you know, something is obviously terribly wrong that needs adjustment, and he doesn't have time all um, to stop training to let it heal. So there might be some... You know, I mentioned before some accumulative effect where it has it has impacted his ability to be quick. But also, I think Cody is younger; he's twenty five. He's naturally going to be quicker. Dom is getting older; he's not as quick as he used to be. You might have just detected natural decline in speed, especially measured against a guy who is pretty athletic and quick. Someone says he was visibly slower in this fight. I rewatched that fight last night, and I have to say it was way more competitive than people are saying. He dropped Cody in round two, easily won round five. I don't think his style is going to hold up as he gets older, though. Right? Might be a fair point to that. More questions about a Rumble and Gnu fight. I'll love that fight, huh? Let's see. McGregor pay-per-view interview. What were the most interesting bits from Ariel Helwani's interview with McGregor for you? Anything that truly surprised you? And more generally, how weird and amazing is it that Connor has people paying him just to answer questions? Any idea how well this pay-per-view did? Uh, those numbers are strictly proprietary. I have no idea how we'd even get them, so no clue. Um, if they keep doing it, that probably tells you it went well. But if they don't, maybe it, maybe it doesn't. But um, uh, 
how we first of all, I'll start the second one first. How weird and amazing is it that Connor has people paying him just to answer questions? Uh, I suppose weird in that we're not particularly used to it, but if you want to monetize things like that, you're certainly able to do so. Um, you know, look, sometimes these interviews, the people are paid anyway. It's just a different form. They don't put it on pay-per-view. They sort of air it on TV and sell ads and then pay the guests. That happens as well. So this is not, you know, being paid for interview in and of itself is not a rare thing. Um, but if you can make money off doing it and people will pay for it, you know, to what extent that matters to you, you'll keep doing it, I suppose. So in that sense, I don't know that it's all that surprising. And also it's not entirely unheard of for people to be paid for interviews. But the most interesting bits, let me think about that. I think one, I thought the, the uh, pushback on GSP was a little surprising. Not that he didn't, the, the lack of endorsement for the double M triple A, not surprising. Pushing back on GSP in the way he did, I thought was a little surprising, but he was in this mood, you know, from that Instagram post where he was literally saying F everybody. Um, he was certainly in this mood. I can say this, you know, um, well, hold on, let me get to this other part first. Uh, so the, so the insistence that the next time he's in the, some kind of combat sports venue, he'll be walking between ropes of a boxing ring. I found that not surprising, but very interesting. Um, you know, slandering Nate Diaz. No, the zings against Mayweather. Not really. Um, the repeated concern about the lack, or I should say, the repeated concern about the distance between himself and the new UFC ownership. I found that interesting. That that still seems to be very unresolved. Um, the praise for the Fertitas I found interesting. Praise for Dana as well. Uh, also uh, noteworthy. This seems to be less a Dana issue uh, where he's a good cop and Patrick Whitesell and Ari Emanuel are bad cop. I found that interesting as well. Um, I think the thing I found most interesting was just the general demeanor, though. This very much middle finger to the world kind of thing. He clearly feels emboldened. I mean, he always did, but he, I mean, he feels really emboldened now and determined and free to do what he wants. I, 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 I'm not sure what to say about it. it. It's not necessarily my cup of tea, but I think a lot of his fans like it. If he can get away with it, it doesn't matter if you like it or you don't, uh, he'll get away with it. Um, the only thing, the only risk that you run is um, to the extent that something bad happens and fortunes change in combat sports pretty rapidly. And I'm not predicting anything. I'm just sort of saying, looking back, if past is prologue, I think that's a fair statement to make. Uh, and if that's the case, I think everyone and their brother is going to draw their knives out on the way down. Now, if he's smart enough and he is uh, good enough, this is not a scenario he'll necessarily face. I'm just saying, don't be surprised if, if things go poorly and they may not, but if they do, that he isn't under a, uh, tidal wave of criticism and attack and, um, revenge because these are sort of sowing some of those seeds. I think of that, I can be pretty sure. But if he, you know, fights one or two more times and gets out, then he wins. He basically wins no matter what, given what he's already done. But you get the idea. John Jones's next fight. John will have taken 15 months off following that rusty-looking decision over OSP at UFC 197 by the time he is eligible to fight again. Surely he needs a tune-up fight. I think a co-main event slot versus Gustafson for an interim title fight would be perfect. Nope. 
That would not be perfect. That is not even close to a tune-up fight. Dana wouldn't have to rely on him to headline. The fans would get a mouth-watering matchup and highly anticipated rematch that's rightfully five rounds, and John wouldn't be put in against the killer because, like DC or Rumble, that would inflict huge damage to his health and legacy. Boy, I do not agree with that at all. I agree with the general sentiment that he looked rusty at 197, that putting him in a co-main event versus a main event is better, and that trying to find some kind of way to have an interesting matchup before going to the likes of DC or Rumble makes sense. With On that, I'm with you completely, but Gustafson ain't that guy. That is way too good of a fighter, way too good. When you're talking about a tune-up here, you're talking about a tune-up, here's what you're talking about. You were talking about at the worst for John, at the worst, he'd fight somebody like Jan Blakowicz or Jean Vellante or something like that. That's the kind of fight I'm talking about, to get right back on your feet. And you might be like, well, look, that fight doesn't interest me. Right. There's a short-term cost to pay for long-term preservation. That's what you have to do. Uh, and if you play your cards right, usually what happens is those guys like John Jones, they go in and blow the doors off whoever they have to fight at that level. The fight ends quickly. And they're able to get back on the horse again. Not always, but there are risks you run, but... You know, John's not a guy who's had a ton of injuries. He's had problems, but that's not really one of them. And he, I think, you know, a Blakowitz or a Cummins or a Volante is a, is, a, is a manageable task for him. Sug 3, Submission Underground 3. Hi, Luke. On a scale of 1 to 10, how enjoyable was Sug 3? I only watched the highlights, so I couldn't tell you. One being a video of a man sitting down enjoying a large hot dog smothered in yellow mustard drinking guinness listening to face the pain and wearing a barcelona jersey and 10 being the final round of lawler versus Conde. well i wouldn't put guinness in the conversation of that my only point about guinness is that it's a fine beer it's it's okay it's just not a remarkable beer and yes i've had it uh, over across the pond which they're right it is better it's still nothing remarkable it's barely a stout uh it's a watery um there's nitrogen introduced into it to give it a kind of mouthfeel that it doesn't actually have. It's not, it's not a remarkable beer. It's not a bad beer. It's not a bad beer. It's just not a, I wouldn't list it as a particularly good beer. It's just okay. Um, but from what I saw about Sug 3, uh, I thought it turned out to be, from what I could tell, it's going to be a pretty good event. Chad Mendez getting out there and uh, uh, staying relevant to an extent by competing against Jeff Glover. I was, you know, what I was really glad about Jeff Glover goes out there. He's like, I'm going to do the donkey guard on you. And everyone who watches like two of these events a year is like, oh, Jeff Glover's donkey guard. How funny. How interesting. And if you watch enough jujitsu, you're like, oh my God, Jeff Glover's doing the donkey guard again. Please, God, please, no more. No more donkey guard. Uh, and someone like Chad Mendez made him go out there and compete, you know? Because a lot of times, Jeff Glover's got, like, uh, if he has, like, a no time limit, he'll put himself into trouble. He'll do that Dean Lister bit. You know, he trains with Dean Lister. I think he's heavily influenced by him. And I like Jeff Glover. He's a very talented black belt, you know, no doubt about it. I think he gives great instruction. I think he gives good commentary. I like him a lot. But when he comes up there and just does this playful shtick where he does the donkey guard, and, you know, the donks who watch this every once in a while are like, oh, look how funny this is. If you watch it consistently, you're like, please, for the love of God, Never do the donkey guard again. Go out there and compete. Chad Mendez made him compete, and I really, really appreciated that from Chad Mendez. He didn't, he didn't, you know, uh, he just tried to beat him the best way he knew how. And when he had him against the metaphorical ropes, he 
he stuck it to him. And that's what someone needs when they compete against Jeff Glover. And frankly, that's what I think Jeff Glover needs. Jeff Glover can beat a lot of guys, but he needs to be pushed in a way where he feels like he has to. He needs to be kind of threatened a little bit. Um, because if he puts himself in danger and then eventually can't get out, he's like, oh, I put myself in danger, you know? It's almost better to have someone who's a little bit of a lesser than him but beats him on intensity, which is almost what that was. I, I very, very much enjoyed that. As for uh, not Jeff Glover losing necessarily, but just that act of forcing him to compete, I really appreciated that. Um, obviously, what happened, you know, Gary Tonin, all the credit in the world, taking on Shoeface, Antonio Carlos Jr. at the last minute. Man, Carlos Jr., I'm telling you, you see a big guy who has small man jiu-jitsu, it is a special thing, and that is exactly what he's got. A very nimble guard. He can scramble, athletic. Um, he can in, he can invert. He reminds me of Abraham Marte, right? Another big guy with small man jiu-jitsu. Frank Mir is a big guy with small man jiu-jitsu. Whenever you see that, man, that's a special kind of guy. Most big guys can't invert. They just don't have a nimble guard like that. Even They might if they're long, but I'm talking about a thick, you know, Middleweight to light heavyweight to 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 uh, especially a heavyweight in Mir's case, you just don't see them being necessarily nimble. And those guys are just fluid off their back, and they can move. And uh, Carlos Jr. just you know getting a flying triangle, pretty amazing, pretty pretty amazing. And I didn't see the Danis versus Agazarm match, so um, but Danis won. What kind of Guinness do you mean? The original Guinness is all but unavailable to those in the U.S. and Canada, right? And I'm talking about the one I've, 2004. I went to Ireland with my brother. He lived in London. We went over. I had Guinness over there. You're right. It is better. Uh, you offered the much friendlier, much inferior, newer formulation in the U.K. known as Draft Guinness. Yes, I'm well aware. The two don't taste the same, look the same, have the same mouthful, the same aroma, and so on. Sure, the one in Ireland is better. When they say that, they're not kidding. It is. It is marginally better. No, not marginally. Moderately better. It's moderately better. It's there's nothing remarkable about the ingredients. There's nothing particularly remarkable about the the brew process. There's nothing particularly remarkable about the ultimate product. It is not a bad beer. You cannot classify it as a bad beer. It's just fine. It's fine. But I think to call it good or even great is objectively just silly. There's no, there's nothing special about the way in which it is produced. Uh, okay, Dylan Dan is calling out John Jones. Does John, I mean, you can find better stouts, arguably, better crafted stouts with better ingredients, arguably, in craft beers, craft breweries uh, all across the country. There's a, there's a number of better stouts, objectively. Uh, okay. Dylan Dan is calling out John Jones. Does John even have a chance against Dylan in a grappling match? Also, where do you rank Danis in the grappling pound for pound rankings? Um Certainly in pound-for-pound pound rankings, he, I mean, I'm not exactly sure. He hasn't competed in an open division in a while. I don't think he would do very well against the Bernardo Far. I mean, their teammates, but the Bernardo Farias of the world or, the, you know, um, Andrew Lowe's, I don't think he has much of a shot against. So pound-for-pound, pound, he's a little bit down the list. Grappling at that level can be very wrestling, or I should say, um, well, you know, pound-for-pound pound is different than absolute, isn't it, right? Um so that's a different question because you have the absolute division where everyone just competes against each other. But that's a different question than pound for pound, which is if everyone was the same, who would win? Certainly, Dennis is one of the better black belts on earth. We can say that with a fair degree of confidence. That That's one thing. How would he do against John Jones? I could see John stuffing all his takedowns and stalling him out on the feet, depending on the rule set. I could see him taking him down late and trying to win on that. Uh, now, if it's submission only and they have to go you know, back and forth to each other, I can see Dennis doing well there. So 
it would depend heavily on the uh, on the rule set. If you're asking who's a better grappler, Danis by a million miles. Um, on the other hand, um, on the other hand, um, John has a big size and strength advantage and a, a, a wrestling advantage as well. And so, you know, which one would overpower which? Over time, I think the grappling advantage would, would, would benefit. But again, it would depend on the rule set. What's up with Nick Diaz? He has allegedly turned down a fight with Woodley in a high-profile match with Lawler. He also turned down a fight with Matt Brown, which seems a little weird coming from a guy who wants big fights and is supposedly eager to fight again. Aren't those big enough for him? Clearly not. If so, how big do they have to be? Connor, GSP, maybe Bisping? Who would you like to see Nick fight next? I wouldn't mind seeing him fight just about anybody. Nick fight next. A any anyone. Just, just go. Do the donkey guard with Jeff Glover. I don't care. Just compete. Please compete. Um, I, I'm really not too picky at this point, you know, which is the opposite of what he is. But for me, as an observer, you know, who does it have to be against? I I almost don't care. A rematch with Thomas Wildman Denny. I don't know. But just just go. Um, so Woodley, sure. Wonder Boy, yeah, great. You know, yeah, we could play this game all day. There's not many times I'm going to be like, eh, no. For most Diaz fights, you're going to be like, yeah, that's sure, yes. You know, sounds great. You want a million dollars and a free car? Yes, of course. Do you want a million dollars in a swimming pool? Why not? Sure. You know, that, that's basically my attitude about it. Um, and the ones he's rejected that I'm aware of, Woodley, or all three of those would be, would be superb. The Bisping fight? Yes, let's do it. You know, I mean, I'm, for the title, I, I think I'd have some issues, but... Um, just in theory, like in an abstract idea, like those two together make sense. There's some other middleweight fights you could make that I'd be totally in favor of. Um, I really don't know what it would take to get him out. A Connor fight, I suspect, because of the big money and the revenge factor, to the extent there is one. Um, you know, GSP, I think he said he would come back for that one. I, I don't know what they're going to do. I really don't. In doing it, and uh, they're giving him plenty of great choices, from what I can tell. Uh, if Ronda came back, would you match her up with Juliana Pena? Taking out Ronda's horsemen and promos from Tough. Also, how would you see that fight going? Um, yeah, I might. Uh, that would be a decent one. Um, there's some other ones, obviously, you could make. But... Obviously, these would all be sort of like requisite on the idea that she had changed camps and she's doing things significantly differently at this point. Um, let's see. Um, the issue for me about her leaving the sport, I mean, look, ultimately what matters is what she wants. Ultimately what happens here is if she is happy in her life, really this is the only thing that we can we – can, uh, you know, I've been very clear. I think when fighters retire, I, I don't normally want to see them come back. When Fedor retired, I was done. When GSP retired, I was done. I'm still done. If he comes back, great. It'll be a huge event. I'll probably go cover it. But nevertheless, I, I feel like when these guys are ready to go, you need to let them, even if I realize there's a rebound effect often. Her, But if she wants to go and that's the way she's leaning, then, we, we, then putting up an obstruction is 
is the wrong thing to do. But I will say this. Her, her losses had happened somewhere in the middle of her career. We'd have a different view of how her career ended, that they ended on the, the last two. Um, I think somewhat changes our perception of her, unfortunately. I don't ultimately think the Clay Travises and Jason Whitlocks of the world are going to define how Rousey is remembered, but that she would have to exit being disgr uh, disgraced in some way by, well, I should say those guys disgracing themselves by what they said, the fact that she had to exit to that kind of, I find very regrettable, even if in the end it, it is not the way in which she's properly remembered. And I think the last thing for me I, when I feel about this, I don't know about this one, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit bummed to hear that she's not coming back, and it has nothing to do with, you know, there'd be big fights and people would care. It's Those are fun things to have, of course, but I don't know about you guys, but just this is just me. Maybe you feel very differently. But for me, I really like seeing someone's greatness um, actualized to its fullest extent, to its fullest extent. This is why I've often talked about, you know, the guys who often give their most are the ones who, are, you know, Kenny Florian did not hold a, a UFC title, but he fought for one a number of times. And when his career was over, I don't know how you can argue he didn't wring the sponge dry of everything. What what do I have to give here in this scenario? What what is what is possible here? Um, let's push it to that max. And for me, certainly Rousey has achieved, you know, an enormous amount for herself and for the sport, uh, personally and professionally and financially. And um, you know, she's a big success. There's no way to deny anything to do whatsoever but um did she achieve as much as she possibly could have and i think the answer for me in that one is definitely no and that we don't get a chance to see that um fully actualized i find that i don't know i find that sad a little bit again i'm not going to you know find a way to reach her management and tell her not to retire they wouldn't care even if i did i just i'm not going to stand in the way of it i'm just going to say you know, this is partly the tragedy of John Jones. I mean, we'll see ultimately if he can rebound, but what if the best of John is behind him through all of this mess? I don't find that likely, but it's who knows, right? Who knows? And you just lost a, por a portion of that. And that's different because of the self-inflicted wounds. This is a little bit, this is not quite that old. To some extent, she holds some responsibility for who she trains with. But if, if this was somebody who really cared about MMA and loved it in a way that like someone like Daniel Cormier did and really wanted to compete, and I'm not judging her for not doing that way, you don't have that, that, that way of viewing life is no better than anyone else's. But I'm saying if she had that attitude, you can imagine she would find a way to retool here and come back and I think do amazing things. Uh, she wants, so it's not what we get. Is Ian McCall cursed? Suspect. We're thinking about Nick Diaz versus Maya. Sure. Sure. <laughs> There's almost no name you're going to give me where I'm going to be like, nah happen but rather if it did happen how long do you vision it going probably the distance or in the event this comes to fruition to what extent diaz can avoid having Maya on his back or mount remember diego sanchez was able to control him on top so if diego sanchez can do it he has a different style of course but i don't know why maya wouldn't be able to the ma the double m triple a i listened to the podcast you ariel and snowden did with sports illustrated 
I got the impression that not only is there an MMA media association in the works, it's progressing at a decent pace. My question is, do you think that the media in the MMA space will be organized before the fighters are? Yes, I do. Um, what hurdles are you guys facing and can you relate to the fighters struggle to organize or is it perplexing to you that they haven't progressed more? I cannot speak about that. Keep up the good work and how S was Carl in the last season. I'm out on the walking dead. I just couldn't take it anymore. Carl is so insufferable. It's like you have a, the, this character. You could double the walking dead's audience if you fed him to zombies. And yet there's Carl. Now all of a sudden who's a hero. I mean, Please die slow, idiot. Um, Ada has definitely dropped the ball with Machida compared to their punishment for Brock Lesnar. Very few fighters are complaining about losing their privacy for USADA's testing. Mark Hunt, for example, talked about a similar story to Ariel before his fight with Bigfoot, and he wasn't happy with it since he wants testing. Uh, does that change about how? Does that change how you feel about fighters losing their privacy at all? No, it doesn't. Uh, lots of people don't quite understand. Uh, lots of people don't understand the necessity of, of privacy, why it's important, why it matters to everyone, why it's sort of critical for a essentially almost a society or any kind of group to to be able to operate effectively. Um, I think fighters pressure each other. There's a lot of peer pressure about this to either be clean or have the appearance of cleanliness or, you know, the lengths you're willing to go to have your life interrupted, um, to prove some kind of, to signal your, you know, your almost virtuousness in this regard. But no, that doesn't change my opinion about whether or not I feel like it's a effective or be justified. Not even a little bit. Hey, Luke, you mentioned last chat you got your DNA analyzed by 23andMe. I did. Inquiring minds want to know, what percentage donk are you? I can tell you I've got 3% Neanderthal DNA. Oh, that's fun. Um, I recommend doing that. I recommend either doing Ancestry.com, which will merely tell you your, your familial history, what part of the world they're from, what percentage you, you you are of, of that and but to, which is not that expensive i think it's like 60 maybe 100 bucks at most 23 and me i think it's closer to 200 but you don't all the same services you get from ancestry plus a ton of other genetic screening um and you know i found out a few things that i was very comforted by and a few things i was sort of saddened by but uh i was glad i found them out you know Connors and UFC's reliability. Reliability. As McGregor was making claims during his recent Q&A about his willingness to defend the featherweight belt, I kept thinking about how much it diverged from UFC's version and how both sides have their tendencies to naturally provide versions of events beneficial to them. Okay, I agree. As an MMA journalist, how do you weigh the information in situations like these when writing articles and presenting your thoughts? For example, here... Who do you give more credibility in their claims, Connor or UFC? Boy, that is a tough one. That is a tough one. Um, so this is the problem of doing journalism, essentially, right? Because, or at least one of the one of the essential problems, um, even if people aren't necessarily being duplicitous or organizations aren't being duplicitous, and sometimes they are in any line of work, 
Um, even if they're not being duplicitous, they are certainly going to say things that are beneficial to them. And, and you don't want to be one of these scenarios where you're like, hey, let's give five minutes to uh, the guy who thinks the earth is flat and let's give five minutes to the guy who thinks the earth is round. They don't deserve equal time. Uh, that's a hyperbolic example, but you get the idea. So what do you do? You really have to know the space. You have to be able to, tr to try it independently um, kind of claims. You have to uh, know what kind of history this person has with telling the truth on the record or even off the record. Um, and as a consequence, I think, you know, look, Dana White has said false things on the record. You might say, well, it was about a reality show. That's fine, but I think it's a firewall that should never be breached. And certainly, uh, you know, uh, there's a reason to believe that sometimes news gets out there that's not really news. Um, I want to say it exactly. There's just reasons to sometimes be skeptical of what the UFC is saying. Even if they think they're right, they might have presented it in a way that is, um, as you mentioned, beneficial to their interests. That doesn't encompass the full degree of truth. Conor McGregor might be doing the same thing. It's it's very, very hard to say. In the case of the one you're making, the recent Q&A about his willingness to defend the featherweight belt, I kept thinking of how much it diverged in the UFC's version. Ultimately, it's hard to judge because we don't have perfect information, right? You can only make a declaratory judgment about something to the extent you have the most amount of information there. So if you if you know there's pieces of this puzzle you don't have, that should that should temper you make a strong declaration about it. So in this particular case, I we lack information here. I, I will say I'm very dubious of the claim that Connor would have defended at 145 had they just asked. Um, he might be right, but I'm dubious of it because why would they, perhaps they didn't ask because they didn't think to ask that could be the case, but also it sort of stands to reason that the UFC could promote a McGregor fight rather than stripping him. They probably would that look at the schedule. They would pass on that. They, I don't, I don't, I have a hard time believing that. So maybe he's right. Maybe, um, and maybe they didn't ask because they didn't think to ask. We are lacking amount of information here, and that should temper ultimately our conclusions. If you're asking about my hunch, I think both sides play a public game um, where they're trying to exert influence on each other. So, like, if this is not true for McGregor, and I don't know that it isn't, but let's say that it isn't, I don't really care. It doesn't. I'm not offended existentially by this because I realize it could very well be part of a larger game that they're playing that has nothing to do with whether or not he even would have defended the featherweight belt. This is about some other kind of struggle that's beneath the surface, which you also have to weigh before you make a strong declaration. A lot of this is kabuki theater and you always have to be aware of that as well. But if you're asking who has a better record with truth, I would say Connor thus far. We'll see how it goes. Mads Vidal. Who would you like to see him fight next? Do you see him becoming welterweight champion in the future? I, I think he has everything it takes. I don't know if he'll put it all together like he needs to to get up there, but he has all the talent in the world to beat anyone in that division. Um, a fight with Maya, with Diaz, I would love it. A fight with Jeez, you name it. Robbie Lawler, I would love it. Like Any of those, man. Any of those would work just fine for me. But yes, I think he has all the talent. All the talent in the world, man. 
The guy is incredibly good everywhere, and it seems like offensively in terms of frequency and output early has is you know made absolute transformations to his overall attack and how potent it has become. Okay, Luke, I want to get your take on something. I recently read an article that brought up a really interesting point about the whole Connor versus Floyd situation. It basically asserted that if the fight somehow gets made and Connor collects the biggest payday of his life, that he would essentially price himself out of any future MMA bout as the chances of him returning to the UFC's pay scale are slim. So if Connor fights Floyd, we may never see him inside the octagon again. Do you really think this could happen? It could. I find it unlikely. If he goes out there, I think the article you should read is Todd Martin over at Sherdog. He has a strong piece about it. And what he basically argues is, historically, if you look through, there's a reason to believe that if somebody has a certain impression of, of an industry and then that in, that impression collides with either A, a greater reality about it, or B, the perception of some kind of um, challenge to the industry that ultimately undermines it, it will, in fact, undermine it. So, for example, he notes that in Japanese history, Japanese pro wrestling, those guys were often seen to be the toughest and the baddest. Even if there was some degree of theater to it, people from other sports and other walks of life were brought in and often made to lose to those guys. And when they started, those pro wrestlers started fighting real MMA fighters like Mirko Krokop and Fedor, they got dusted that this badly affected the Japanese pro wrestling industry, that it couldn't really recover, at least not to the degree that it used to enjoy. And there might be other reasons why it declined, but that certainly is chief among them. And so this concern I have, uh, he echoed it, but I've made it on this chat already. You know, there's a real concern that um, if he goes in there and look, maybe he shocks the world, it's possible. Maybe he knocks Mayweather out in the first round, maybe knocks him out in the ninth. It would be incredible if he did, you know. He is a much bigger guy than Floyd. Floyd's getting older, who knows. But in all likelihood, what would happen is he would get dusted. And in all likelihood, he would get made to look quite bad. And if that does, in fact, happen, um, what costs are associated, not merely with his career, but the perception of MMA? Because I'm sorry, boxing media, and boxing's not doing all that great right now. That would be a shot in the arm for them. I don't think it would reinvigorate their industry to such a degree that they would all of a sudden be back on TV uh, and you know, 10 million viewers on P for PBC broadcasts on whatever channel. I don't think it would do that necessarily. But from a public relations or at least an imaging standpoint, they'd be able to say, look. Look at those, those donks like Luke Thomas with 3% Neanderthal DNA. right? Look at those Neanderthals. They can do nothing relative to us. If you want to see unsophisticated brawls like we've been telling you they are for the last 20 years, go watch UFC. But if you want to see refined fighting, this is the place to come. And I think overall, that potentially, potentially that is a risk you run in terms of the damage that could be wider to the sport. Uh, and I share that concern. I don't really, I don't want to be in a world where McGregor tries his hand and we would view it very differently. We'd be like, Connor was the one who went over there and tried, you know. Connor was the one who went over there and put it on the line. Come to MMA and see what would happen. But Floyd only ex Floyd is begging for this because he likely sees it as the easiest payday of his life. And you could say Floyd's crazy. I don't think Floyd's crazy. Floyd is one of the better gamblers I know. Maybe not so much on sports, although he's not half bad at that either. But he wants this fight because he thinks he would absolutely take McGregor's lunch money, uh, figuratively and literally, you know. Um and I don't, I don't want to be in a scenario like that. I think it'd be very bad for the sport. Luke, can you please clarify your stance on tapping to chokes? Please correct me if I have this wrong in any way. All right. 
couple of months back during the period of that Encompass Sage tapping to Barbarina. Page not tapping easily to Rose. Yes. Holly going out on Misha and Connor tapping to Nate. You seemed quite passionate in your position that fighters should tap to chokes and any machismo around not tapping is misguided. Sure. If I remember right, you also intimated that fighters were suffering additional unnecessary damage by not tapping. Depends on the choke, but not... Uh, I'd have to go see that because I don't know if that's true. Uh, I definitely got the impression you were assigning a negative value to receiving a choke and the gym culture surrounding them. That can be true to an extent. Now, whilst talking about Chael's choke on Tito, you repeatedly reference the NYC gym that forbids tapping to chokes while assigning any value judgment. It is not the gym per se. It is the competition team within the gym. Also, you seem to say that you had no real problem with holding a choke too long as it wasn't that big of a deal. That's not quite right either. Although these two things aren't directly contradictory, they do seem a little inconsistent. Um, okay, so here's how this works. So, again, if Tito was uh, fined, I'd have been totally okay with it. In fact, I probably would have preferred it. But that ultimately nothing happened doesn't, doesn't horrify me. Um, yes, a tap has to be respected. And no, I don't necessarily look at someone going out choking as like super awesome. But I just also don't think we can divorce that from a culture that exists. And this one is in sport competition, BJJ, for the competition team. Now, not for anybody else. If you're not in the competition team, all the same rules apply. This is a sacred thing, right? Um, but that's one thing where you're choking all the way to... Uh, it's one thing to, to like not respect the tap right away and then get separated. That's what the referee is there, partly there for to make sure those things are enforced. And he did, in fact, enforce it. That's another, that's a different thing than choking someone else to the point of unconsciousness, right? Putting them all the way out. Um, that certainly, I think we all recognize we've seen enough times to not be horrified by it, but that probably carries more risk than merely what Tito did to Chael, which was he had half a choke on that he was squeezing very hard that ultimately the other guy didn't complain about, he didn't get put out for, uh, and the referee was able to enforce. So, yes, if someone taps, it should be respected. They probably should have fined Tito. That's fine. But the question is what damage was done, which is what I asked around the Tito versus Chael thing. What damage was really done? Basically none. Basically none. And there is a, there is a culture that's part of this where guys will, I don't recommend it, but if the competition team at this gym the pro competition team, they don't tap the chokes in the training room. That's a true thing. I am not making that up. Um, I, I don't think that's probably good, but uh, you get the idea. So for me, yes, if someone taps, it should be respected. If someone doesn't respect that, that should be enforced. If it wasn't enforced quick enough or there was substantial damage as a consequence or any real measurable damage, there should be. What is the measurable damage done to Chael? Basically nothing. I think if people thought there was damage, they thought there was damage to the idea that tapping wouldn't get enforced quickly enough. In other words, like because Tito held this and there was no fine, other fighters might feel emboldened to follow in his lead. Um, I think that's a understandable concern, but ultimately, I don't, I don't see contagion spreading here. That that doesn't seem that doesn't seem logical to me. So I understand your point. I think it's a fair challenge, right? Um, you and if you tap, that should be respected by your opposition. Again, we I'm not like thrilled about what Tito did. But if he had put Chael out and then dropped him and they couldn't get the arm separated, that would be a very different scenario to me. A very different scenario. And if someone chooses to go out and they still don't let him go, that would be very different. But if someone goes out and he lets them go right when they're supposed to, when the referee identifies them going out, um, 
because they chose not to tap, that is also part of the culture as well. That is that is a thing that happens, you know. Uh, it is 2.15, let us go. Oh, not quite. Body shots. Luke, who is the best fighter in at body shots in the UFC? Ooh, help me with that, gang. Who's really good at it? Who's got some good rib roasters? Jimmy Manuel had a sick one on OSP, right? Um, who's a good body shot artist? Um, with his kicks, Javel Dos Anjos is good. Um, any good boxer, really. The Diaz brothers are both good about going to the body. Um, I can't think of off the top of my head, but there's obviously a, a tremendous amount of them. All right, let's see. Luke, what did the hand tap to Chael mean during the fight that people keep insisting that it was fixed? I don't know. I can't make heads or tails of it, but I don't think ultimately it is required to explain what happened. I can explain what happened through the known acts, uh, the known observable phenomenon. I don't need to include this as some part of the narrative. What type of car does Donk Donkerson drive? I drive a 2015 uh, Mazda CX-5 Sport. Black, of course. Better career, Faber, Florian, or Kennedy? Probably Faber. Uh, we save Katie Dolan. Can we save Katie Dolan? You mean Katie Nolan from the FS1 belt of tools? Not the biggest Katie Nolan fan. Just not my cup of tea. Uh, is the bigger tool? What is there a bigger tool than Dennis training with Connor? Does it make you a fighter? Well, that depends on one's perspective, but, uh, Dennis is allowed to act however he likes. I personally don't m like this new version of him where he is sort of aping Connor's, um, you know, I think Connor can pull off Connor. I don't think Dennis can pull off Connor, but it's not my life to live. Perhaps the UFC would be against a tune-up for Jones and favor a short-term approach with him given his past. God, I would hope. God, I would hope. Why have big man BJJ as opposed to small man BJJ? Seems the latter has better carryover. It does. It's just that if small man BJJ were easy for big men to learn, they would. It's hard. You have to be athletic. You have to be nimble. I think you have to have a certain degree of natural flexibility and a lot of those guys can't get it. It's hard. It's really, really hard. Um, how many how many guys who are 6'2", 250, you know, they want to bear bolo like the Meow Brothers? Not, not a lot. And even if they wanted to, how good could they get? Some guys are just kind of athletic and scrambly and quick and built for it, and Shoeface is one of them. Ooh, if Guinness is not a good stout, what is good in your opinion? So folks are asking me what beers I do drink. Now, again, I'm not calling Guinness bad. We all look at Guinness was a bad beer. No, I didn't. It's just it's okay. It's fine. It's perfectly fine. It's, you know, maybe slightly above average, in fact. But it's not, it's not an amazing beer. Um, I don't drink a lot of stouts, to be honest. They're not necessarily my favorite either, so you can take that into account for what it's worth. What do I have in the fridge now? Believe it or not, I have an IPA, Bell's Two-Hearted Ale. Some donks were saying this online the other day. They were going, you know, American beers are terrible. Well, yes and no. First of all, last time I was in London, I saw a bunch of construction workers drinking Budweiser, so you tell me what that's about. But I don't ever drink what you would typically classify as an American beer. Miller Lite, Budweiser, Coors. These are beers for donks. These are beers for simpletons. I don't ever drink them. Like that's what fraternity brothers drink or, you know, this is like saying American restaurants are so bad. And I'd be like, well, where do you go? 
Chili's, Applebee's, Outback. Well, yeah, I mean, sure. Like, if you that's what you think are American restaurants, then yeah, they're bad. But like, the truth of the ma matter is, if you travel to any place of any kind of size in this country, there is going to be a robust, not merely around beers, but spirits as well. Uh, less so wines, of course. But um, in the city is here. I had an IPA the other day. Believe it or not, I'm I'm drinking some because they're getting better. Something called DC Brown makes called them the Wings of Armageddon. Look it up on Beer Advocate. This is a this is an incredible beer. And I I don't I don't ever ever drink Budweiser or Miller Lite unless I'm at a party and that's all they have. And even then, I'll probably just opt for some rot gut liquor instead. Uh, so you know, I mean you know idiots might drink that, but like none of like. When I drink with my friends, we we never drink that. We drink local beers. If I have to, and I'm hard up at a bar because they're, you know, the best beer they have is Blue Moon, which I also think is an overrated beer. Um, oh, it has an orange slice in it. Yeah, it needs it. Uh, I'll have a Stella just because it's a simple, nothing beer. You know, it's it's a very okay pilsner, but it's not offensive in any kind of way. Um, but that's not a good beer either. Like I don't, I wouldn't hold that up and be like, oh, the difference. The Guinness has like a cultural impact you know it's like a it's a much more revered version of what heineken is to to the netherlands or something um like it holds sway culturally which is why it's this almost institution but if we're just evaluating the quality of the beer i don't think you could find very many brewmasters who would be like 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 we can objectively point to things in the ingredients or the way in which it's made that indicate it's one of the better stouts on the planet because it's not it's just not i'm also partial to belgian beers um uh la guillotine duval uh, West Mullen. Um, yeah, there you go. What else? Would you ever compete in submission underground if you were offered a match? I was offered a match and I turned it down. Uh, if Guinness is not a good stout, there we go. Are we on this one? How much of SBN's audience is outside the U.S.? I don't know. That's a good question. But I think it's probably a pretty pronounced amount. I mean, think about it this way. There are more UFC fighters affected by this uh, Trump executive order. I'm not here to litigate it again. I'm just sort of pointing out there are more fighters mentioned that could potentially be affected than even in the NBA. NBA basically has two guys of Sudanese ancestry that could potentially be affected. That's it, right? I mean, that's not insignificant because these are, these are well-known figures and it could affect their lives, but just two guys. Like, UFC's got more than that. That tells you how international UFC is as sport. And so... Um, you know, I often look at my podcast. I can tell you I like my podcast. You guys want to hear some stats? I'll give you some stats. Just to give you a sense. This is not explanation. This is merely this is merely my podcast. I don't I don't have any uh I don't have any ability to to tell you what's going on from there. But this is just for my stuff. Okay. Top cities. You wanna hear what the top cities are for my podcast? Ready? This is the top cities. Number one, Toronto, Canada. Number two, Dublin, Ireland. Three, Brisbane. Four, Los Angeles. Five, San Francisco. Six, New York. Seven, Brooklyn. That's interesting. They separated. Uh, eight, London. Nine, Chicago. Ten, Stockholm. Eleven, Calgary. Twelve, Vancouver, Canada. Thirteen, Portland. Fourteen, Houston. Fifteen, Phoenix. Then Denver. Then Montreal. Then Singapore. Then Edmonton. Then Glasgow. Uh, Melbourne at 22. Ottawa at 23. Sydney at 24. Oslo, Norway at 29, Auckland at 31. Uh, it goes on from there. You get the idea. It's for me. 
it, it matters a lot to be able to reach international audiences like that. Big time. Uh, did WMEING have an obligation to check in on and protect their asset before allowing Ronda to fight Nunes? Uh, I think they think they did that. Any idea when the new Tough will air? I don't think they've announced a formal launch date, have they? Let me see. They might have. Oh, yes, they did. It'll be. Y'all can look it up. I'm going to do that in the chat. Connor can use his interview pay-per-view to leverage you. Can Connor use his interview pay-per-view to leverage UFC? I think that's what he was trying to do. How do they justify his media obligations versus his contract money? That's a good question. <laughs> and also, if he can get paid to do media on the outside, I think he's saying he wants to get paid to do media on the inside. You know, so it'll be interesting. How did three ranked Jacare end up fighting Boach? I'm all in favor of this fight. I think Boach is just the right kind of guy to keep Jacare busy, just enough of a challenge to, to have to take him very seriously and manageable enough as a contest that Jacare can leverage it to be something even higher up the ranks than he already is. If I'm Jacare, I'm not, I'm not hating this fight too much. Dana White said he's interested in making Nick Diaz versus Maya. Boy, y'all love this one. Yeah, I love it too. Make it. I'm all in favor. Make it. Would you rather rename the Washington Wizards back to the Bullets or rename the Skins into almost anything else? I'd rather, believe it or not, I'd rather change the Wizards. Like the Skins thing is, it is what it is, and it's a lightning rod. But I think almost every Washingtonian would be like, please, for the love of sweet Jesus, change that stupid ass name. Alvarez, I think, I think he is taking a necessary break from the game, and I in no way, um, I in no way, um, um, in no way, how do I say this exactly? I don't think it's the right call. I in no way am, uh, hard, you know, find it any way disagreeable. What'd you think of the end of the stick to sports article? If you haven't already seen it, Brian Curtis in the ringer, the question is, more and more sports writers, both because they have to and because I think they choose to and because they can, talk about politics in their feed. But the question is, how much does their audience really want to hear that? Um, and I think there's a pretty clear case that some of them don't, but some of them do. It's a very, very difficult line to walk. If Manuel beats Anderson, Corey Anderson, would you like to see him in a rematch versus Gustafson before, before throwing Alex back to the top? Yes. Yes, I would. Uh, why would MMA fighting censor the comments to the T. Woodley and Musasi articles? Feels ironic. I don't think you know what the word ironic means, but let me answer that one anyway. I'm not in a position to make a claim or to tell you about what editorial judgments happen at the site. That is for uh, the, the powers that be to make. But let me just say, if you run a website, generally, on anything, movies, fighting, sex and dating, food, whatever, um, you need to have some kind of staff that has an ability to curate the comments if you care at all about how they look to the world or if you care at all about how much they match your own standards for what you allow and you legally have to have some of these standards sometimes in the comment section in other words you have a standard you have to police that standard and that takes manpower a lot of manpower 
And I think the issue is, I, I don't know this to be true, but just something to think about if you're a fan with any site, with any site, if they're closing comments, it's probably because the comments will turn out to be um, problematic and that they don't want to waste manpower trying to in, in, enforce that standard because it would take so much work away from everything else they have to do. And you'd be like, oh, how hard is it to moderate a comment section, right? Well, here's my evidence. Look at any comment section on the internet. How many are great? Um, you know, comment sections from YouTube to the New York Times to Breitbart to, geez, ESPN, you name it. Everyone hates them, right? Um, I think the thread for this live chat is a noteworthy exception. The, the conversation here is reasonable. People make disagreements. They make agreements. They pose interesting questions. I feel like we've got a good thing going here. But generally speaking, I, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn by saying comment sections are hard to moderate. And there's a certain amount of manpower that goes into moderating them. You have to make a question as an editor about how much you want to put towards that versus something else when there's a lot of other work that can be done. So I don't know that that's the reason, but maybe consider that if comments are closed. Uh, let's see. Where do I get my news from? Uh, let's see. What do I read daily? The Post, The Times, The Economist. I try to read left and right. I read National Review. I read um, ProPublica. I read... Um, I watch the news hour. I do not watch any cable news. Cable news, I don't care what persuasion it is, is absolutely wretched in every respect. Um, what else do I read? I read foreign policy. I read um, um, for my Lebanese news, I get the Daily Star. For Colombia, I read um, Revista Semana or El Tiempo. Um, yeah, BBC sometimes. BBC can be pretty good. Uh, you get the idea. Things like that. How do you feel about Nganu versus Nelson fight as opposed to the three contenders you mentioned, Kane, Reem, and JDS? Would love that fight too. The Kane fight feels to me a little bit early, but Reem and JDS I would absolutely love to see. I'd love to see those three. So I'd be more in favor of Nelson, Reem, and JDS than I would Kane. But if you can get by any of those guys, well, and especially the latter two, Reem and JDS, and especially JDS, then a Kane fight to me sounds awesome. I just think you have to sort of think about how good would he be right now against Stipe. And certainly you can imagine him knocking Stipe out. But you could also imagine Stipe's wrestling prowess winning the day. So still, still uncertainty about that. What else? What happened to KJ Noon? Good question. Got into trouble. Who do you who did you favor him beating between him and Rumble? Him. Who are you in favor of John fights Rumble now? Probably Rumble unless he gets a tune up or at least some kind of fight underneath. I think that's a tough fight to come back from. Um, let's see if we got one more here. True or false? Here we go. John Jones becomes heavyweight champ in his career. Ooh, false. Cormier beats John Jones before he retires. Probably also false. Conor McGregor is the greatest of all time conversation when he retires. Top three-ish. Top three-ish. Maybe. If he keeps going, not right now, but maybe. Demi and Maya wins a UFC belt in the next 12 months. Probably false. Cardio is an underrated asset in MMA. No, I think people respect it properly. You're asking, is it a valuable asset? Is not the same as asking, is it underrated? Valuable, true. Underrated, false. 
TJ Dillashaw is the overall net winner at the end of the matches, rematches between him, Cruz, and Cody. False as well. Okay. Uh, appreciate you guys watching. Thank you so much. Um, where would you rank in a journalist fighting tournament? I think we'd all rank right at the bottom because it'd be the worst thing imaginable. All right. Please give the video a thumbs up, share it around, subscribe to the channel. I always appreciate it when you do. Um, there'll be coverage, I think, of UFC Houston and uh, Monday Morning Analyst for that Monday. So some good stuff coming your way. Appreciate you guys watching. And uh, thank you so much. Subscribe, do the whole bit. Until next time, you know what time it is. I pull this up. Enjoy the fights. <laughs>